Welcome to Eat, Drink, Innovate, the podcast about food startups, innovators and entrepreneurs who are making their mark in Australia's dynamic food and beverage industry. The future of food is happening here. Come join Susie White at the table to eat, drink and innovate. Aha! Hi everyone, I'm Susie White, a product innovation coach, author and podcaster in the food and beverage industry from Melbourne, Australia. Today, I'm talking with Tristan Kitchener. He's the founder and director at Kitchener Partners. They're a specialist consulting and advisory firm focused on grocery retailing and the grocery value chain for retailers, manufacturers and growers. Their goal is to increase product ranging, performance and growth of fast-moving consumer goods within grocery retailing. In this episode, you'll hear from Tristan how to gain ranging within a major grocery retailer in Australia, including who to speak to, what to prepare, and just when is the right time to consider expanding your business into the grocery channel. And in the aftertaste section, I'll remind you of the three must-have pieces of information you should be ready to share when presenting your new product to a grocery retail buyer. Welcome to the podcast, Tristan. Hi, good to be here. So it's always good to set the scene for the listeners first. Tell us a little bit about your role and what your business does. So my background's in grocery retailing. Uh, I worked for Sainsbury's in the UK and then came out to Coles in 2005 and um, managed the fresh produce buying team at, for, for Coles. And since uh, about 2009, I've been working in an advisory and consulting capacity along the, the whole grocery chain from, from retailers down to, down to producers, but now increasingly helping smaller businesses access particularly the major two retailers Coles and Woolworths and actually try and get their products and brands listed within the majors. And that is exactly why I have you on the podcast today because we are going to dive into the topic today about how do you pitch a new product to a grocery retailer and it would be really helpful if you could set the scene for us first Tristan in terms of what's happening in the world of the grocery retailers today and Maybe if you could spell out for us, who are the major players and, and how are they positioned? Yeah, sure. So, look, I think if you, if you step back and you look at the, the grocery industry and you particularly look at the growth within the grocery industry, what you can see is that, you know, since about 2009, 2010, since the, the West Farmers acquisition of Coles, that the industry growth is about 4%. It's about half what it, what it was historically for the previous probably 15, 20 years. Which suggests that you know margins getting squeezed is getting is getting more competitive, and you know when you look at the you know the, the coals turnaround back onto West Farmers in 2009 2010, followed by a, a resurgence by Woolworths, um, who really came back a few years later. You've seen the emergence of Aldi now that is really can be considered a mainstream retailer, the hard discounter model of smaller now amount of product lines at a, an everyday good price and consumers understand the offer and you can really say that Aldi is a, is a mainstream retailer now. And the other hard discounter there is also Costco, you know, fairly small, only about, you know, one and a half percent in terms of market share. 
Um, and then the the new entrance, which is which is Kaufland, who's coming in, who's another German hard discounter who haven't opened any stores, but will do later later this year. And on top of all of that, you have got the uh, you know the Goliath of Amazon, which is globally very well proven, and now Ocado, which is a the pure online retailer that's come out of the UK and has partnered with the eight biggest retailers globally. So this is a very proven online retailer that will certainly shake up the Australian market in probably two to three years time. When you look at all the, the retailers that are now have accessed the Australian market, you, you can see one thing in common, which is this unrelenting squeeze on price and on margin, because it is far more competitive than it ever has been. So the questions that retailers will be asking themselves is, you know, how do they grow? How do they capture value? Which is exactly what producers and suppliers are doing too. Let's talk about those those big retailers, the Coles and the Woolworths, because in Australia, we're a little bit unique. Is it right that they capture about 70% of our market? Yes, that's, that's about right. So Woolworths slightly bigger, around about sort of 35%, probably about $38 billion in terms of turnover. Coles slightly smaller, about 29%, 30-odd billion. But I think, you know, whilst the market is very much dominated by the big two, when you look at growth and you see who's really increasing, Actually, it's the hard discounters. It's the, it's the likes of Aldi, which are now around about 13%, about $12 billion in sale. They're growing 15 to 20% year on year. The retailers probably suffering the most is Metcash. They're a little bit, I think, strategically stuck in the middle. They're challenged in terms of their, their value offerings very much around local. Um, and that's the sort of ground that I think Coles and Woolworths are starting to go after with their small format stores. Plus, they don't have the scale and the buying power that the big two do as well. So when you look at the Australian marketplace, you see that we're, we're basically changing. Australia is, is changing to a market that's probably more similar to the more developed European markets where hard discounters really dominate. And just to be clear, what, what I mean by hard discounters, those are retailers such as Aldi, Costco and Coughland that have a very small product range relative to the big two. So maybe about 1,500 product lines versus fifteen to twenty to 25,000 product lines in, in Coles and Woolworths. And they don't use promotions. They have a very kind of stable offering, an everyday low price strategy. And Australia is very attractive to these discounters for three key reasons. Firstly, supermarket margins in Australia are incredibly high by, by global standards. Secondly, store rents are pretty high. And, and thirdly, labour costs in Australia are high as well, um, which means that you know when you look at the discounters, they use labour far more efficiently compared to the full-line supermarkets. And bearing in mind that labour is the single largest operating cost for supermarkets. And for Aldi, it's probably running about 6% of sales, whereas for majors like Coles and Woolworths, it's probably 10 to 12% of sales. Okay, that was incredibly helpful to set the scenes on the Australian landscape. Let's look at this opportunity from the lens of maybe if I was a small or medium food or beverage business and I wanted to get a new product into one of the major grocery retailers. I just want to walk through that opportunity and maybe talk around some of some of the issues or challenges and the preparation that's needed to go into a grocery retailer. So what are the grocery retailers really looking for when they're considering the new products that they range? Because you mentioned some of them are ranging up to 25,000 in one store. What really motivates them to choose a new product? 
Ultimately, retailers are driven by, you know, shareholder returns. So it, it comes down to the economics. But that, in turn, it hinges on the, the customer value proposition that as retailers, you need to be satisfying customers. You have to be obsessed by the customer and giving the customer everything they want, solving the pain points of the, of the consumer. So ultimately, it's about saying from a retailer's perspective, how can we differentiate from our competition? So how can Woolworths be different to Coles? And yes, you can do that through stores, formats, private label offerings, but at the heart of it comes the branded offering of what suppliers can offer to that retailer that is different to what another retailer or competitive retailer may be receiving. And that's where it's tricky, isn't it? If you're a food or beverage manufacturer and you want to scale up and go national, you don't really want to be offering account exclusives. You want to be ranged in all the stores with the same product. But there's that challenge of how do you help the retailer differentiate themselves by offering a differentiated product? Yeah, and that's a challenge in the Australian market where it is a very small market compared to, you know, other countries. And really to be successful, you have to be supplying probably both of the major retailers. And that's a challenge. And how do you how do you manage the relationship with keeping both of those retailers happy and both of them feeling that they're getting the best possible deal. And that's no different to how the bigger manufacturers, the Heinz and Simplots, will be running their strategies around private label versus branded offerings as well. Because again, a brand will always want to be putting their products on the shelf, on the retailer shelf, as opposed to the, the private label alternative. So yeah, it takes it takes careful management. Sometimes it's about offering innovation. And, and product development that may be slightly different between each of those retailers. But it does all hinge upon the, you know, the CVP, which is the consumer value proposition. So, you know, it's, it's essentially saying, well, you know, why should consumers buy your products and, and how do you satisfy the factors that are important to consumers? And that's absolutely critical for any brand or any product because ultimately you're trying to solve a pain point for the consumer. And that is what's going to keep the consumer coming back in time and time again. And retailing it's a volume-led business. It's not a margin-led business, which means you need to be selling lots and lots of a product. You don't want to be too niche or too specialized from, from, from the major's perspective, at least. How do you actually even approach a retailer? If you've never sold through those channels, what's the best way to get in touch with them? And who would you speak to? That's probably one of the most challenging um, aspects of, of actually dealing with the majors in that you know, you're trying to access buyers who are incredibly busy and time poor. They are essentially the the engine room of the retailer. They, they're the one who generates the sales. So accessing the buyers, developing relationships with the buyers, accessing at the right level, the more senior you go, the more strategic those individuals are, the slightly lower you go, the more um, operationally focused they will be in terms of, you know, what are my sales and you know, profitability next week and the week after as opposed to what's a longer term strategy. So it's about having a blended approach that will access various levels within the, the retailer with the right messaging and the right proposition to essentially try and find a mindset alignment with those event individuals that you're you're talking to. And within that you may also look to talk to the commercial leads but also retailers are heavily invested within technical functions around product development, product technologists that really are the right hand of the buyers. They cover the 
other aspects such as you know the innovation the new varieties the packaging the development the product formulation so again the technical functions are a good source of information to help understand what are the specific needs and strategies that the retailers may be employing yeah and i think you touched on a really good point there as well knowing who is the right buyer to talk to because a lot of people don't understand how the categories are segmented and that just if I walk up and I'm talking about crackers with the biscuit buyer and then I want to talk about muesli bars, well, actually, that might be an entirely different portfolio for a different buyer who's dealing with nutritious snacks, for example. Absolutely. And, um, you know, buyers, as you say, they, bro- they, they cover specific portfolios. One thing common to all buyers is that when they look at their portfolio of products, they look at it from a perspective of a what's called a customer decision tree, whereby they look at the range architecture. So they look at the different products within their portfolio to say, is it satisfying every customer need? And you know, one of the terms that's often used is good, better, best in terms of price quality architecture. But also increasingly the retailers are now using customer decision trees which they use for developing category strategies and and planning for their strategies, which then influences ranging decisions. It is used for layout buildings in terms of in-store facings and bays and so on. But it's really important for producers, prospective suppliers to understand the decision tree for for any category. And what a decision tree essentially is, is it tries to identify what is the customer need what's the usage occasion so if you take a category such as tomatoes for example you might break tomatoes down into cooked tomatoes salad tomatoes snacking tomatoes and then snacking you might bring break down into good better best and your your, your good offerer will be a, a 250 gram punnet of standard field grown cherry tomatoes whilst your best might be a speciality of you know your high flavored Perino type varieties or your snacking yellow tomato. So you can see how the retailers are essentially essentially segmenting their portfolios to be very targeted, which enables them to put the right product range into individual stores based on the demographics or the specific needs of that store. So doing a little bit of homework and actually going in as a supplier to say, well, I'm going to look at the category. I'm going to try and work out what is the the customer decision tree for this category what is the architecture in terms of good better best how does that affect retail price and ultimately how does it affect the value that the consumer is receiving for any individual product that that consumer might buy so that is a terrific cheat sheet of what people should be preparing before they go and in and talk to a grocery retailer. Let's say they are successful. They manage to secure a meeting with a buyer. What else should they be doing to bring to that meeting and to prepare to share at that very first meeting with a retail buyer? You'd go in with a fairly comprehensive presentation that gives an overview of who you are, what you do, what your background is, your credibility, um, your experience, but then also very clearly articulates what the proposition is that, that you feel would be a good fit for the consumer. And you can probably break that down into two, two buckets. One would be the understanding of the consumer, that you have the consumer insights analysis, which might be anecdotal, it might be first-hand experience, it might be talking to friends and family. And then the second part is actually 
the offer, designing the offer to say, well, what is it that we've come up with that is going to be so special and unique and why you want to put it on your shelves? So if you look at that first aspect of saying, well, you know, understanding the consumer, that's broader aspects such as, you know, who is the consumer, the demographics, the profile, the characteristics of, of, of that consumer segment. It can also be about how do their needs impact them? So, you know, what are the pain points of the consumer that you're, you're trying to solve? And then also what's happening emotionally with that consumer? What are their, their wants, their needs, their fears? What's driving them emotionally? Because a lot of purchases, much as we feel humans are rational beings, we, we tend to be very irrational. So, you know, tapping into those, those wants and needs and fears is, is, is really critical. And then the second part around, you know, designing the offer with this is the product I'm, I'm going to be offering you, that comes down to features to say, well, you know, what are the benefits? What are the issues that you're looking to overcome? Um, the more specifically around benefits, you can actually say, well, what are they? What, what is different about it? What makes this offer so good? And then in terms of the experience of, well, how will it make the consumers feel? How does it ease or impact their emotional state? And then finally, you know, it's, it's a case of looking at the competitor set to say, look, I'm not a me too. I'm not just copying what somebody else is already, already doing. I'm not just a substitute. And it's saying, well, look, these are the other options that are available in the marketplace. And this is why my offer is different to those alternative options. This is a really strategic, well-thought-out, well-researched presentation deck. This isn't just turning up with a product sample and saying, try this, it tastes delicious. What do I do if I know I'm going into that meeting and maybe I'm not the first to market? Maybe I'm doing something different and I'm a new brand for that retailer, but I might be, for example, the second kefir-based yogurt that I can see in store. It makes it hard to be a, a me too because you're not actually offering anything that's different and for me as a buyer if I'm sitting there and I've got someone who's come in and saying look I've got this product as well I've got to then make a decision say well am I going to derange or delist the first person I worked with who was the first in and actually has given me what I wanted or am I going to then look to put this second supplier in and the likelihood is I wouldn't unless there's a real significant point of difference to say that this second supplier is is better or different the main lever you would pull is the price lever and that's that's double-edged why so why couldn't i just say great price me at a different price point it, it can be a race to the bottom and you know one of the things that's important to understand is retailers are experiencing more competition than they ever have done in the last probably 30, 40 years of retailing. So retailers are understandably under price pressure, particularly with the online discounters coming in as well. So it's, it's actually good to, ironically, it's actually good to give the retailer a good margin because if you get a good margin, they're, gonna, they're more likely to support the, the products and, and keep coming back and say, yes, we, we want to stock it. You're more likely to achieve a, a, you know, a lower price point, which hopefully will mean your volume sales will be stronger as well. Going in sometimes at too high a price, it can actually be counterproductive for you as the business owner because if that price is too high and you don't get the volume sales going through and you don't hit the hurdle rates, the units per store per week targets that the retailer will set you. So they're saying 15, you need to be selling 15 units per store per week and you don't, then you're likely to be delisted. So you are actually better off to go in at, a, at, a, at the right retail price to maximize your volume sales as opposed to go too high and possibly stall out those sales. And that 
concept can be extended to store distribution as well that people sometimes feel oh wow if i can get listed in a a thousand Woolworths stores that's fantastic well you're actually probably better off getting listed in 200 stores that are the right stores for your product the demographics that your product is targeting as opposed to trying to get into those other stores that sound good but you're probably not going to sell a lot and you're going to dilute your units per store per week hurdle rates and then that possibly leads to the awkward conversation. It's time for a quick break now to thank our sponsor. When we come back, you'll hear from Tristan of Kitchener Partners about when it's the right time to consider expanding your business into retail grocery distribution. I'd like to say a quick thanks to today's sponsor who helped make this podcast possible, the Monash Food Innovation Centre. They can help you fast track and de-risk your new products in the Australian market or export markets like China. Did you know that only one in 10 food and beverage products survive the first year of launch? That means nine out of 10 fail. If you'd like to be one of those businesses that gets it right, then the Monash Food Innovation Center can help. It has cutting edge technologies, product development services, and runs capability workshops to upskill business owners and employees in the art and science of food innovation. Whether you're a food startup or a large corporation, check them out at www.foodinnovationcentre.com and see how they can help grow your business through innovation. Welcome back. We've heard from Tristan Kitchener about the major grocery players in the Australian marketplace, the pricing pressures they face, and their desire to fuel growth via new products. And so I asked Tristan if this was a distribution game that only major multinational food companies should play, or whether retailers were supporting and interested in smaller, medium food and beverage startups who were trying to enter the grocery channel with their new products. Certainly within the last three to four years, I've done a lot of work to encourage smaller businesses that have great innovation, great consumer understanding because they're at the coalface every day. They may be at the local market selling products. They're really in touch with their consumer base. And increasingly, in fact, you see the retailers approaching these businesses and actually saying, look, can you come and actually talk to us about possibly supplying us? And I've worked with a number of businesses that have been approached by the majors for that very reason. The challenge for the retailers is that sometimes these businesses, they they don't know what they don't know, obviously, which means they don't understand um, the needs and, and the workings of the major retailers. And supplying a major retailer when you have huge volume requirements at times and certainly huge startup volumes when you do the initial loads go in can be quite challenging from a manufacturing perspective and and you know getting the logistics to run as they they need to so it's important i think for smaller producers who are probably courting the retailers for the first time to, to really understand what they're getting into and that you know means talking to people who are involved in the industry talk to other suppliers who are currently supplying the retailer If you're actually approached by a retailer, ask that retailer, say, look, have you got any other suppliers I can talk to who have been through a similar journey that you're proposing we take with you so I can just understand what's involved? And the retailer will probably encourage those conversations because ultimately, if it doesn't work out, it's a headache for the retailer as much as it is for the supplier. 
And you're right, I have seen a number of examples of the grocery retailers nurturing up and supporting small startup brands. In fact, I think that's probably one of the ways they're disrupting some of the big food companies in the existing categories the most by bringing in these really new product offerings and new brands that really aren't existing anywhere else. Yeah, and and the reason for that is that it goes back to the point we were talking about earlier, is that the retailers are striving to be different and they're looking for competitive advantage. And that comes from having suppliers that can do something different to to what's going on in their competitors. And even when you look at it on a slightly more um, macro scale and you look at Woolworth's recent investment, I think they put $30 million into Marley Spoon, taking an almost 10% stake. Marley Spoon is a, you know, is a large meal kit delivery business, but it's a really clever strategy for Woolworths. And the reason it's a clever strategy is it, you know, it gives base load production to Marley Spoon, so they get some volume efficiency. But it also for Woolworths, it means that outsourcing product innovation and differentiation in a very low cost way because they're getting somebody else to do it. But to me, it says that actually the majors are very, very receptive to businesses that can offer something different and really give that retailer something to shout about. Which I'm sure is very encouraging news to the listeners of this podcast. Now, we talked about some of the things a retailer might want to discuss with you or negotiate with you as a, as a supplier when you're in that negotiation phase. What other common things do you find a grocery retailer would want to negotiate on apart from price, which we've touched on, and maybe exclusive ranging? Are there any other factors that people should be aware of? It comes back to the whole the whole offer, which you know encompasses you know case fills. Are you delivering direct to store? Are you live delivering direct to distribution centres? Is there an allowance for wastage? So the retailer might say, "Well, look, I'll cover the first three percent of waste, but you then have to cover you know any waste above three percent." Um, they will also talk about marketing budgets above the line, below the line spend, depending on how big the business is. They might want to know who else you'll be supplying to, what media activities you're going to be doing. But really, it will come down to developing a relationship with the specific individuals within the retailers that they actually believe what you believe and that they believe in you as an individual, as a business, as much as they believe the product. Ultimately, you know, it comes down to a very human level where, you know, it's based on relationships and relationships hinge on trust and respect. So it is about developing that connection with the buyer. And what you'll see is that connection, it, it can vary by category as well, because, you know, when you look at some of the more commoditized categories, the conversation is more about price. Take canned veg, canned tuna, those sort of heavily commoditized products. It is, it is about talking price, talking margin, retail price points. Whereas when you look at other categories, they're less margin focus they're not margin dead categories such as chill desserts fresh foods dips spreads those sorts of things are less price sensitive it's about getting the right offer for the consumer at the right price and it's a good reminder about the importance of personal relationships because you're right i've seen many a company either fall from grace when a buyer changed and suddenly their brand or their product wasn't seen as favorably or the other way around when a buyer's stayed there for a long time, they've built up a long-term relationship with that buyer and, and had great business success. Let's talk about what happens when your products do fall from favor. And this was really, you were touching on it earlier about the idea of hurdle rates and units sold per week. 
If that's happening and there is a threat that your product might be delisted, is there anything that you could do as a supplier to anticipate that or try and manage that? If you reach a point whereby you're getting that letter from the retailer that are giving you three months notice because they feel you're not meeting hurdle rates, it generally suggests you haven't done enough soon enough. Unfortunately, what you do see is you, you see some of the, particularly the smaller businesses that have got less experience of dealing with the majors, if they, they get the product listed and they get it on the shelf and, you know, they crack the champagne corks and it's all celebrations. But actually, you know, getting into the retailer, yes, may be tough, but staying, staying in, staying relevant, staying profitable is probably harder. And once you've got listed in a retailer, you then need to really start driving the business in a more strategic way. That means by, you know, putting in the right promotional strategies, the right promotional mechanics. So you may be cycling through money off discounting promotions that drive penetration, i.e. more consumers coming into your category and buying that product. You then may be using multi-buy mechanics to get the weight of purchase up. You might be using added value, you know, 20% extra free mechanics to then reward the loyalty of those of those customers. But ultimately, you need to be having a promotional strategy in place. Plus, you need to be working strategically with the buyer to say, look, what is and isn't working? Please, can you share your data with me to tell me what's selling, what isn't selling, what's the, the next horizon, what's the next opportunity, what's the next flavor variant, pack size, new product, new category that, that I should be considering now. So it's building, you know, the, the, the horizon that might be 12, 24 months away. So you're staying very relevant to the consumer and you're staying relevant to the retailer. And I think you touched on a good point there about sort of that, that future forward vision and having your plans ready so that if something isn't working so well, you could substitute something in or work with the retailer to come up with a plan. Let's talk about timings. How far out are retailers working nowadays? I mean, realistically, if I was to approach a buyer, I'm imagining it's not the next three months I'm going to get my product stocked, or is it? What sort of lead times would you need to consider? So it depends by category. In in the fresh foods, the lead times are shorter. Generally, most categories would have an annual, what's called a range review, whereby the retailer, uh, you know, every year will look at the current range they stock. And they will be deciding, you know, is the range right? Is it too big? Is it too small? And this is really driven by that customer decision tree process. And what they're ultimately doing is looking at the opportunities for range rationalization to see where are consumers switching or substituting products, whereby they say, well, that's just a duplicate product. I can take it out of my range. I can get more stock turn, more sales volume through a smaller number of product lines. And really, it's about balancing sales against customer loyalty. So what the retailers will look at is they don't necessarily just want to, you know, if they've got 20 product lines in a category and, you know, 80% of the sales is coming from the biggest five lines, do they then just go and delete the other 15? Not necessarily. That chopping the tail mentality, which used to be in retailing, you know, probably eight, 10 years ago, is no longer there. They're far more strategic. They've got far better data. Woolworths has got a 50% ownership in Quantium, which is a phenomenal analytics business, can really help understand what the consumer's desires, needs, and and so on are. Coles has the equivalent with flybys. So the retailers are much, much better able now to understand the needs of the consumer. 
suppliers need to be doing that as well. They need to be accessing ideally the retailer's insights, complementing it with their own insights, looking at domestic retail trends, but also looking internationally to see what's happening in other like markets. And when you look at other markets, the UK is very similar to the Australian market for a product perspective. And hence the reason there's a lot of a lot of Brits in Australian retailing and why I'm sitting here in Australia at the moment, I suppose. But when you look at logistics, it's more based on, on the US and Canada. So it's really about understanding the whole supply chain. Where are the opportunities for improvement that actually protects you against potentially getting deleted? But to do that most effectively, it's about being the buyer. The buyer is busy. They've got so many different things going on. You as the supplier should be the expert on your product category, not the buyer. And if I was sharing new product ideas with a retailer, not just the immediate one I'm thinking of, you know, hopefully getting ranged, but also my future pipeline, how wary should some of the producers be about sharing their new product ideas with a retailer? Now, a lot of them are offering their own private labels in certain categories. Is that a concern? Look, ultimately, you you need to get to a point where you can trust individuals. You don't want to be overtly putting your IP across the whole market, but you do want to be able to trust a few individuals that you feel are going to be able to influence your future direction. And you know, when you when you look at what businesses like Amazon have done, whereby they can track sales and they see a, a you know a particular branded line that's doing very well, they can then go and bring out their private label equivalent. And then they can change the algorithms on the, their online sites to actually channel consumers to their, to their private label offer as opposed to the branded offer. And they can obviously play the retail prices to, to make sure the consumer has a, has a very compelling opportunity to switch. So, you know, with the retailers, you, you, do need to, you do need to trust them. You can go down the route of non-disclosure agreements and so on. You want to protect your IP, but ultimately, if you want to get listed in the retailers, you will need to share your ideas, but do it with consideration, obviously. And maybe now taking a step back and and thinking about, is this the right step for me as a business? Should I really be considering making that leap into, into grocery retail? How would a small business know when they're ready to work with a large retailer and make that, that kind of that big step up or that scale up into going into grocery retailing? So you've got to do your due diligence. You've got to understand what is it like to supply a major retailer. It is 24-7. These businesses are running virtually every day of the year. There will be demands on you that you have to deliver in full on time. So, so you know, there's an expectation that you will meet all the orders that are given to you. Those orders can change at, at short notice. Um, you've got to make sure the economics stack up. You don't commit to something that's just financially not viable for the long term. But you've got to make a decision to say, is this the sort of life I want or not? Or am I happy to be a to be a small fish that's going to be supplying through those those other channels? And there are other channels to the major retailers, be that independent retailers, farmers markets, and uh, and also the the hard discounters to a degree. You know, being a supplier is tough. It is challenging. It is it is all-encompassing. It's good to think about those things and go into it with your eyes wide open. So uh, Tristan, this has been really helpful. Any final words of advice for food and beverage businesses who might be thinking about dealing with a grocery retailer for the first time? I think, you know, as I've I've probably been mentioned a few times, it, it is all about this 
customer focus to say, look, you know, what is the what is the consumer wanting, and am I really truly solving the pain point for the consumer, and is my solution scalable? Because ultimately, to to supply to a major retailer, it is all about scale. And that's from a manufacturing perspective as well as a demand perspective that consumers will want your product week in, week out. So it's just making sure that you, your value proposition is not, it's not a small niche hobby business. It is actually something you feel could be of importance to the consumer and therefore of importance to one or two of the major retailers. Yeah, that's terrific advice. And if if some of the listeners wanted to get in touch with you, Tristan, or understand a little bit more about how you help businesses, what's a good way for them to find out more about you or get in touch? Yeah, sure. So, you know, certainly go to my website, which is uh, kitchenerpartners.com.au or feel free to drop me an email at Tristan, T-R-I-S-T-A-N at Kitchener partners.com.au and very happy to um to have a conversation terrific well look thank you so much for your time today tristan that has been very enlightening great to talk through the pros and cons of working with a grocery retailer and help people decide whether it's truly the right thing for their business so thanks for joining me today you're welcome thank you aftertaste the sweet taste of success Thanks for sticking around. This is the part of the podcast when I think back on my chat with Tristan Kitchener from Kitchener Partners and reflect on what we learned today. And I wanted to remind you of the three must-have pieces of knowledge that are helpful to share when presenting your new product to a grocery buyer. Number one, knowledge about your consumer. Now, Tristan spoke about how retailers need to grow their business by being the best at satisfying their customers. That's you and I, the buyers of all those products on the grocery shelves. And they do this by being obsessed with the consumer value proposition. That is, by offering products that are the best at solving consumer pain points, needs, or wants. And so, as a product manufacturer or supplier, You really need to be armed with your consumer insights. You need to share stories, facts, observations, or research about who your ideal consumer is. What do they like? What do they want? What do they fear or avoid? And why do products like yours satisfy them? The second piece of knowledge you really need to share with a grocery buyer is the key consumption occasions, and how purchase decisions are made. Remember, grocery buyers are managing huge portfolios of products, and they're deciding the right combinations of products to put on the shelf by considering the customer decision tree. Now, Tristan told us about the customer decision tree and that it shows the range of consumption occasions in a product category and the need associated with each occasion. That makes it really clear how purchase decisions are made for your product and also what product attributes are important. Tristan gave us the example of tomatoes. Are you offering a tomato that satisfies a snacking occasion or a cooking occasion or a sandwich making occasion? If it's for snacking, for example, then the needs within that occasion might be that the tomato has to be bite size, colourful, 
milder tasting, sold in smaller, more portable containers, or that they stay fresh for longer. Sharing your knowledge of the customer decision tree for your product and its category will really help set you up for the final piece of knowledge that you should share with your grocery buyer. And that is number three, how your product offer is unique and different. Having demonstrated your understanding of your consumer, their purchase occasion and their needs, you can now share how your product attributes uniquely satisfy these. This might be based on your ingredients, your packaging, the flavors, the pricing or the brand positioning. And actually, it's usually a combination of many of these things. But the key thing here is to demonstrate how your product does this differently or better than existing competitors and that it warrants ranging in store as a result of this. By sharing these three pieces of information with a retail buyer, you'll build a really solid case for why your new product is unique, valuable and worth a position on their retail grocery shelf. Well, that's it for this episode. Many thanks to my guest today, Tristan Kitchener of Kitchener Partners, for sharing his wealth of knowledge about the Australian retail grocery market. If you're interested in connecting with Tristan for assistance with grocery retailing, I've included a link to his website, mailing list, and LinkedIn account in the podcast episode show notes, so you can get in touch with him there. And of course, I would love to hear from you on this topic. What's been your experience dealing with retailers in Australia? Do you have any sell-in tips or advice you'd like to share? Have you managed to get on shelf and stay there? You can give me a call on the Eat, Drink, Innovate podcast hotline. It's 613-88-444-823 and leave me a voicemail message. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and be sure to tell a friend or colleague. I look forward to joining you again on the next episode to eat, drink and innovate. Do you have any suggestions about successful food or beverage entrepreneurs and innovators in Australia that you think Susie should be talking to? You can get in touch with her at eatdrinkinnovate.com.au forward slash podcast and find all the show note links and innovation resources there too. And if you like this podcast, please help others discover it by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. 